Welcome back to the text messages where our goal is always the same, to make you the listener a better Bible student and witness to the world around you through the study of God's holy word. My name's Rich Scheller. Today we're studying from the Gospel of Matthew, the 22nd chapter, verses 1 through 14. The sign may not be as common as it once was, but there was, there was a day once when a sign hung in the doors of restaurants and stores which stated, No shirt, no shoes, no service. Likewise, once upon a time, fine dining establishments required both its wait staff and its patrons to dress in formal attire, and even today there's a handful around the country that still require it. Of those that do require it, loaner coats are provided for men who come unaware. Today there are many places, hospitals, schools, and work sites, which, based on your apparel, you may or may not be able to enter if you don't have the right credentials or personal appearance, or you're not dressed correctly, you might not be able to enter in. The parable which Jesus told in Matthew 22, 1-14, not only illustrates that the kingdom of heaven enforces a dress code, declaring the eternal importance of being properly attired and the implications for those who choose not to comply. It also makes it clear that, like the few fine dining establishments left today which enforce a dress code, the required attire is also provided. Before we jump into the passage, let's consider for a moment the purpose of a parable. A parable, parabole in the Greek, is defined as a fictitious narrative of common life conveying a moral. Most of us are accustomed to interpreting what we read in the Bible according to life as it is today. And while we may apply it to daily life today, we we must first understand or interpret it based on both the author's original intent and the hearer's understanding of it in the day it was given. Thus key to applying scripture today is understanding the historical, geographical and cultural context in which it was first spoken and received. A failure to do that will result in a flawed application of how to live out those biblical truths today. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I don't have the time to study the Bible like that. Why should I anyway? Isn't that what pastors and teachers like you are for, Rich? Well, if as J.I. Packer once said, a misinterpreted Bible is a misunderstood Bible which will lead us out of God's way rather than into it, Shouldn't each of us want to understand it as best we can? There are many good commentaries available today which will help you in your study of the Bible. Likewise, there are many good Christian websites like preceptaustin.org, which provide a ton of solid biblical scholarship. Prayerfully utilizing tools like these as well as the sound teaching of trusted pastors and teachers can aid you in rightly dividing the word of truth, as Paul commanded in 2 Timothy 2.15. Regarding the text that we're about to study, it would serve us well to understand that while Jesus' parable utilizes a wedding to illustrate the main point, the subject of Jesus' parable here is not the marriage supper of the Lamb found in Revelation 19, 7-9, but the kingdom of heaven, as he points out in verse 2 of the parable in chapter 22 of Matthew, specifically addresses the basis upon which one is or is not welcome in the kingdom of heaven. Key to understanding the parable is what seems to be the summary of it found in verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Before I unpack that pivotal and in my mind often misunderstood verse, let us consider the parable in its context. In the parable which Jesus told the king, representative of God, sent his servants out in verse 3 to call those who were invited to the wedding. Twice he sent them, and they were not willing to come. Instead, those invited disregarded. Literally, in verse 5, they made light of the king summoning them to come. Shamefully or spitefully, verse 6, 
treating the servants the king sent out and ultimately killing them. In response to their constant rejection, the king in verse 7 sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Jesus' parable is not merely a story meant to illustrate a point, but biblical and historical allusions to God's consistent effort to reach the Jewish people by the Old Testament prophets, as well as prophecy concerning his efforts to reach them through his son, Jesus Christ, and the disciples he selected to reach out to those same people in the New Testament. All of them were sent by God to call people to him. Both they and their message was rejected time and time again by a majority of the Jewish people, and the messengers themselves, including the Lord Jesus Christ, were killed. Only Jesus Christ, to this day, has risen again. God's wrath on the nation for its disregard of his gracious invitation and its shameful treatment and murder of his messengers was poured out in AD 70. When the Romans razed Jerusalem and burdened the temple to the ground. But neither the king of Christ's parable, nor the God of heaven and earth whom the king of the story represents, was finished. The king sent his servants out one more time to invite, in verse 9, as many as they could find to the wedding. And they, in verse 10, gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Who and what sort of character were those invited guests labeled either bad or good? Were they unrighteous or righteous people? Actually, the primary audience that Jesus was addressing consisted of self-righteous men. Pharisees, chief priests, and elders of the city. The three parables found from Matthew 21, 23 through 22, 46 were spoken directly to these men. Religious leaders who had rejected Jesus as Messiah and ignored the Holy Spirit concerning both their sins and their need of redemption. These, in my mind, are numbered among the bad guests populating the wedding hall. But the fact is that by human standards, some people are good. They're kind, they're giving, they're empathetic and compassionate towards others, and some are bad, greedy and self-centered and self-serving. But by God's standards, no one is good. Jesus himself, when one called him a good teacher, responded, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that's God. Matthew 19, 17. In reality, we all fall under the assessment of Isaiah the prophet in chapter 64, verse 6 of his prophecy. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, he said. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. What you and I need to understand here is that the bad and good people who fill the hall for the feast is a reference to you, me, and every other human being, past, present, and future. We read in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. That means he's not lazy or he's not, he's not wasting time. But he's long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Look again at verse 14 of our parable. Many are called. That word called is translated from a Greek word, kalitos, which means invited. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, we read in Matthew 121. His people is an immediate reference to the children of Israel, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thus, the many who are called is first a reference to the children of Israel, but they refuse to come. The Apostle Paul said of them in Romans chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. 
But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's you and me. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Because of their rejection of the invitation, the many of verse 14 refers to all of us. Every man, woman, and child from every nation, race, tongue, and tribe, both Jew and Gentile, both the bad as well as the good, we have all been invited. Perhaps it's no surprise to you that the many who Jesus was referring to in his parable is a reference to all of us. But I would like to say that Jesus wasn't teaching so-called Christian universalism or the view that regardless of belief, every human being who has or will ever live will ultimately be saved and restored to a right relationship with God. The Bible makes it clear. While everyone will give answer to God in heaven for the things that they did in the flesh, not everyone will live there for eternity. Those who believed in the Lord Jesus will give answer at the judgment seat of Christ, as we see in 2 Corinthians 5.10. They will be judged and rewarded on the basis of the works that they did for Jesus after they believed in him. And you can look in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, and Revelation 2.23, as well as 1 Peter 1.17 to see that. The rest of mankind... All who ever lived but never believed in Jesus Christ will appear before God himself, who, he who sits on the great white throne, as we read in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. But they will not have a part in the kingdom of heaven. That being said, how do the many who are called become the few who are chosen? Literally, eclectos, selected, chosen out from among or approved by God. Look again at the parable we're discussing. The king's servants, without discrimination or partiality, and per his orders again went out and invited everyone they could find to the feast. Those invited came just as they were in terms of character, social status, and even apparel, and were supplied, as we find out later, the necessary wedding apparel by the host, the king himself. This was customary during the days in which the parable was told. That this was the case in our parable becomes apparent in verses 11 and 12, where the Bible says, But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Clearly, everyone at the feast came without proper attire for a wedding. Graciously, the host provided appropriate attire to all, but one guest did not feel it necessary to put it on. That one represents all people, including the religious leaders to whom Jesus directed this parable, who because of self-righteousness or tradition or religion or their own good works, think that they don't need to be approved, or they don't need the approved covering which the king supplied by which to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The improperly attired guest had been invited like the rest, and a way had been made for him to be acceptable to the host, but he refused it and was, in verse 13, bound hand and foot, taken away from the feast and cast into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. My friend, remember this parable concerns the kingdom of heaven, and specifically entrance into it. This man's expulsion from the wedding feast illustrates a far more fearful outcome for the purpose of helping all people to see the right and only way to enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you're a Christian today, that process was not initiated by you. He who began a good work in you, see Philippians 1.6, God the Father, by way of his Holy Spirit, invited you into the kingdom of heaven. 
The Spirit of God convicted you both of your own sinfulness and neediness, John 16, 7 through 15, as well as of the love of God in Christ Jesus towards you, Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. And when you believed, you were clothed in the righteousness of Christ, Colossians 2, 14, and 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The Apostle Peter wrote, about this in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, where he wrote, You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, or from aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That precious blood of Jesus, shed on Calvary's cross, cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and by it we are in essence clothed in the garments of white. See Psalm 51, 7 and Isaiah 1, 18 through 20 and Revelation 7, 9 through 14. And you may wonder why I read these references to you instead of break down each verse. Frankly, I'd like for you to open your Bible and read those verses for yourself and unpack it while we're studying. To be clear, our covering is not external. While one day in the kingdom of heaven, we will wear a garment of white. Believers today have an internal covering. The blood of Jesus cleanses our consciences from dead works too, or so that we can serve the living God. Hebrews 9.14 By faith in the shed blood of Jesus, we were washed and we were sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6.11 The blood of Jesus Christ having cleansed us from all sin. See 1 John 1.7 the blood of Jesus and his righteousness exchanged for our sinfulness from his cross is the covering by which we may be numbered among the accepted few. Listen, many people today have rejected the invitation of the Father, the conviction of the Spirit, and the sacrifice of the Son, and are today as unprepared to enter into the kingdom of heaven as the improperly attired guest was in Jesus' parable. They rely on their good works, theological understanding, or lack thereof, their upbringing or their philanthropy and strict adherence to their religious traditions, but none of these are a substitute for the covering, for the robe of righteousness available to all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. The invitation has been sent. God gave His only begotten Son, John 3.16, and His Son, having been made a little lower than the angels, Hebrews 2.9, dwelt among us, John 1.14. He died in our place, John 1.29 and 1 John 2.2. And three days later, he rose again, 1 Corinthians 15.4. This Jesus, this only begotten Son, stands at the door of your heart and knocks, Revelation 3.20. The followers of Christ have gone out declaring the good news, Matthew 28.19-20. A way has been made, John 14.6. And the way said, Come unto me, all you who labor, who try to save yourselves, and are heavy laden or burdened by the guilt and shame, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11.28. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. In John 11.25-26. And, and then he asked a simple but pointed question. Do you believe this because it all boils down to this it all boils down to belief 
There is one acceptable covering, one way, one hope of redemption, Jesus Christ. Only by faith in him will anyone enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only by the blood of Jesus will anyone be welcomed there. Many are called, but few are chosen. It's only by faith that you are accepted in the beloved, Ephesians 1, 6. Selected and approved by God for a place in the kingdom of heaven. He has called you. Will you receive from God the only way to enter in? My friends, as I wrap it up today, I want you to think about that. Maybe you're one of those that are relying on your works, you're relying on your religion, you're relying on uh, your upbringing instead of faith in Jesus. I want you to know that you're, you're not clothed in the right attire. You're not wearing that which makes you approved and acceptable in the kingdom of heaven. The only thing that will make you acceptable is faith in the shed blood, in the person of Jesus Christ who gave his life for your sins. I hope and pray that if you haven't before, you will trust him today. Until we meet again, the Lord bless you and keep you. If you haven't come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord convict you that you may come to a place where you invite him to be Lord and Savior of your life.